Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary Port St. Lucie. Please join lead pastor Mike Wiggins for the message Clarity. Well, I don't know about you, but when I was a kid growing up, I absolutely hated studying. And so I was the kid, I'd much rather be outside playing with my friends, kicking a soccer ball around than inside of my room reading a book. And so because I did not apply myself to my education in those early years, when I went to Bible college, I paid dearly. You see, Bible college was a huge challenge for me, and I had to study really, really hard just to make B's and C's, and I got a lot of C's back in those days. And so it wasn't until Bible college that I actually was forced to take reading seriously. And so there was a, a lot of reading in all these different classes, and because I read so much in those days, I developed myopia or nearsightedness. And I still blame Mrs. Grubbs, English literature, for my nearsightedness because I had 20-20 vision all the way till college and I walked into her class and she gave all of us this big English literature book that's that thick and the font is probably that small and my eyesight was shot, right? But, but how many of you guys are happy for corrective lenses, right? And so right now, if I take off my glasses, you guys are a complete blur. It's a sea of blur. I see men like trees right now uh, before me. But if I put my glasses on, now all of a sudden, crystal clear, I can see all of your wonderful faces. And so if you sleep this afternoon, I will see you <laughs> and I'll call you out. No, I'm kidding. According to the National Eye Institute, 41% of Americans have myopia or nearsightedness. So I know many of you, almost half of you here this afternoon can relate to what I'm talking about. So whether you're nearsighted or farsighted, what do you do when your eyesight's blurry? Well, you go to an optometrist, <laughs> you take the exam, you get fitted for eyeglasses. If you have a more serious issue, you go to the ophthalmologist, you have surgery. But, but here's the important question for the day. What if our spiritual eyesight is blurry? What if our spiritual perception is all clouded? What if we have a hard time seeing things like biblical truth or principles for spiritual growth or God's will for our lives? Does anybody make special eye, spiritual eyeglasses to increase, sharpen our spiritual eyesight? And of course the answer is no. But by the end of the message, I hope you learn some things that are gonna help you to gain spiritual clarity, to help you to experience understanding truth. So later in our message today, we're gonna to see that the, the disciples, they had a hard time seeing truth clearly. The disciples, as far as we know, they had physical eyesight that was clear as day, but their spiritual eyesight was all blurry. And we often have the same problem. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna tackle that topic once we get into chapter eight. But because we are a Calvary Chapel affiliated church, we have to finish chapter seven because we go verse by verse, right? So last week we left off in verse 30. We're picking it up today in chapter seven, verse 31. If you're looking at that verse, just say amen. amen. Okay, so here we go. I'm gonna ask you to stay with me all the way through the study. And then Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee, in the region of what? 
the Decapolis. And so last week, if you were with us, you know that Jesus encountered a Syrophoenician woman up there in the region of Tyre, the red city there on the Mediterranean Sea. He was up there deep in Gentile territory. He ministers to the Syrophoenician woman. He delivers her daughter from a demon. Now we see that he packs his bags with his disciples. They turn north and they head about 20 miles north up to the region of Sidon. And so if you see Sidon right now, say amen. amen. See it up there? And so now he's turning back south. We don't know if he's going down the Jordan River, but he went all the way back down to the Sea of Galilee. And we believe he goes down the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. So bottom half of your screen, the Dead Sea, that's Judea, that's the, the desert, that's the lowland, that's where it's really hot. But then up there, the top half of your screen, the smaller body of water, that's the Sea of Galilee, that's the beautiful part of Israel, uh, today, um, lush, green, mountainous area. And so Jesus goes down that eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to an area known as the Decapolis. And so you guys see all the, the 10 red cities? Okay, and so that's the Decapolis, deca meaning 10. That's a Rome, a Rome away from Rome. Those are Gentile cities that have been Hellenized. If you remember from previous studies, uh, the Greek culture has been accepted. The Greek language has been accepted all around the civilized world. And so these are Gentile, Greek-speaking cities. And Jesus is now in this area somewhere around those 10 cities. And so, look at verse 32. It says, and they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. You may want to underline speech impediment. And they begged Jesus to lay his hands on him. Now the Blue Letter Bible tells us that the term speech impediment is made up of one Greek word. Okay, and so speech impediment, there you see the transliteration of that Greek word, magilalas, and it means speaking with difficulty. It's very interesting to me that that word right there, that Greek word, is only found once in the Greek New Testament, right here in Mark chapter 7, verse 32. I'm going to explain why that's important here in just a minute, but let's go ahead and read verse 33. So they bring the deaf man to Jesus, who has a speech impediment, and taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after speaking, Spitting, the inference here is spitting on his fingers, he touched his tongue. And so because the deaf man couldn't hear, the Lord didn't speak to him, he touched him, right? He entered this man's mental world and he put his fingers into his ears. And everybody knew who Jesus was by this time. Everybody's talking about Jesus, whether you live in Galilee, Judea, Tyre, Sidon, or the Decapolis, everybody knows Jesus is the miracle man. And so when this deaf man feels Jesus' fingers going in his ears, no doubt he's thinking, Jesus wants me to hear. And then the Lord spits on his fingers. I don't know why. We'll ask him when we get to heaven, okay? He spits on his fingers and he touches his tongue. And when this man feels Jesus' wet fingers touching his tongue, I don't know if he shivered a little bit. I don't know, I probably would shiver. But he feels that, and now, now all of a sudden he knows 
Jesus wants me to speak clearly. Now, before we go on to the next verse, just know that if you've ever come forward for prayer after service, we will never do this to you. Okay, we're not gonna spit on our fingers and touch you in any way, shape, or form. Jesus can do whatever he wants, but we won't. All right, verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he, what's the word? Sighed. Why don't we all just sigh right now? Ready, one, two, three. All right, that's what he does. He sighed and said to him, Ephatha, which means be opened. Now, it's very interesting to me that Jesus sighed. Why did he sigh? I believe Chuck Swindoll is really accurate here. Why did Jesus sigh? Jesus hates what his creation has done to itself. He groans over the pain that humanity has brought upon itself through what? Through sin, okay? And so if you know anything about Chuck Swindoll, Insight for a Living, the guy's been preaching forever. Um, he's a solid Bible expositor. You know that he's not saying, Chuck Swindoll is not saying that this man sinned, therefore God judged him and made him deaf. It's not what he's saying at all. What he's saying is not that the man sinned, but all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ladies and gentlemen, all of us are sinners, starting with our father, Adam, the first man created. You see, Eve was deceived by the serpent. Adam was not deceived by the serpent. Adam knew exactly what he was doing and he made a choice in the freedom of his will to rebel against God. And when Adam made that choice to rebel and directly disobey God, the Bible says that everything fell. God had initially made everything perfect, but man ruined it. And so Paul tells us back in Romans chapter eight that because of that, all of creation is under the bondage of corruption. And so we groan. Mankind groans, go back and read Romans eight sometime. Mankind groans, creation groans, and apparently in our text today, the son of God groans. He sighs. And so why is there so much sickness and disease and pain and death? Why do natural disasters like hurricanes and tornadoes, right, and earthquakes and tsunamis come and destroy property and destroy lives? Let me tell you something. It is not God's fault. It's our fault. We did it to ourselves because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? That's what you call a biblical worldview. So the bad news is we live in a fallen world. The good news is, by the way, aren't you glad for good news? Amen. The good news is Jesus came to change all of that through redemption. All right, so when he came the first time, Jesus started his work of redemption. And when he comes again the second time in our future, he's gonna finish his work of redemption. And so 2,000 years ago, mankind got a taste, just a little taste. Well, actually, it was a pretty big taste. 2,000 years ago, mankind got a pretty big taste of the coming redemption in the amazing, awesome, mind-blowing, healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And so blind people saw, deaf people heard, mute people spoke, lame people got up and ran around, dead people were raised to life by the Son of God who entered time and space and began the work of redemption. And so if Jesus began the work of redemption, he's gonna come again and he's gonna finish that work of redemption. And so in our story today, he puts his fingers in this man's ears, 
he says, be opened. And what do you guys think happened? Look at verse 35. And his ears were what? And his tongue was what? And he spoke plainly. And by the way, I think, I think it'd be very appropriate right here for us to put our hands together and thank Jesus for his work of redemption. Awesome. And Jesus charged them to tell no one in verse 36. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished, these Gentiles down in the Decapolis, were astonished beyond measure, saying he has done all things well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And so can you imagine how happy this man was? He was deaf. And all of a sudden, he can hear his children laugh. He can hear his wife's voice if he's married. He couldn't speak. He had a speech impediment. And now all of a sudden, he's able to speak very clearly. Now, let's go back to that term. The English term speech impediment is made up of one Greek word. We said this earlier, magilalas, speaking with difficulty. Why is that important? Why do I share that with you? Well, let me answer it this way. One of the things I love about being a pastor is I get to learn new things as I prepare for these messages. And so I actually learned two new things this week. The first thing I learned is that that word, I've already told you, it only appears one time in the Greek New Testament. The second thing I learned this week, which is exciting, is that that word, that one Greek word, magilalos, only appears once in the entire Greek Old Testament. How many of you heard of the Septuagint? Raise your hand, just a few of you. Well, a lot of you, great. So you ever see LXX in your study Bibles? That's the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And so once again, here we go again, right? Because of the Hellenization of civilization, Alexander the Great conquers the world and the Greek culture and the Greek language spreads all around the Mediterranean Sea. It becomes the common language of civilization. And so the Jews, 200 years before Christ, decided we need to take our Hebrew Bible and we need to translate it into the common language of the day. And so they, translate, they translated the Hebrew Bible into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And it was the Bible that was mostly used in the first century AD. It's the Bible that the New Testament authors used, like Mark. It is, we know this because as you read the New Testament, when the Greek, I'm sorry, when the New Testament authors quoted the, the Old Testament, they quoted the Septuagint. And so what am I saying? What I'm saying is that in verse 32, Mark chose to use a word for speech impediment that's only found once in the Bible that he had, the Septuagint. And where in the Greek Old Testament is that word magilalos found? In Isaiah chapter 35. If you're new to the Bible, Isaiah the prophet wrote 700 years before Christ. And he wrote about the coming Messiah. And he told us that when the Messiah comes, he will open the eyes of the blind and unplug the ears of the deaf. The lame will leap like a deer. And those who, what's the two words? Magilalas will 
sing for joy. Mark has the Septuagint. He sees that word in Isaiah 35. He knows it's a messianic passage. And then as Peter's telling him AD 50 to 60 about the story of Jesus, and he's writing the gospel of Mark, and he writes about the man with the speech impediment, he takes that word from the Greek Old Testament and puts it in the Greek New Testament. Ladies and gentlemen, who is the only person in history to fulfill that messianic passage? Shout out his name. Jesus. You see what I'm doing here? I'm giving you yet another proof for the fact that Jesus Christ really is the Messiah. You see that? He's the Messiah. And there's hundreds of passages like that in the Old Testament that describe the Messiah's birth, life, suffering, miracles, death, and even his resurrection in the Old Testament. What am I saying? What I'm saying is that Christianity is true. And so let's think about this for a minute. If Christianity is true, what does that also mean? That means that all of the religions are false. You say, that doesn't sound very tolerant, Pastor Mike. Well, let me ask you this. If you put your kid in elementary school in math and they're taking a test and on the test it says two plus two equals blank and your child puts four, but some of the other kids in the class say two plus two equals five. Another kid says two plus two equals six. Another kid says two plus two equals seven. And the teacher stands with the, with the tests on her desk and tells all the little kids, hey, because the number one value in this class is tolerance, I say everybody gets an A. You all got it right. What would you do with your kid? Would you leave him in the class or take him out? Take him out. You're so intolerant, you people. So why do we have a double standard? Why do we say that's not okay for math, but that's okay for religion and theology? Ladies and gentlemen, it's not okay. Christianity says Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross paying for your sins and mine. He rose again the third day and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. Every other religion says, no, that did not happen. Somebody's lying. And we can be tolerant and say, let's all hold hands and walk off into the sunset. But you gotta understand something, that truth is truth. And the most loving thing that we can do is not say everybody's truth is good. The most loving thing we can say is, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through him. That's the truth. And so, he opened the eyes of the blind. He unplugged the ears of the deaf. He made the lame leap like a deer. He caused people with speech impediments to sing for joy in fulfillment of passages that are hundreds of years old. And if he came the first time, I'll say it one more time, and started the work of redemption, that means he's coming again. And the good news for you and I in our old broken down bodies and I know you young people don't even relate to what I'm saying, but just wait. The good news is one day there'll be a new heaven and a new earth and we're gonna stand in our new bodies. 
We're gonna stand in our brand new bodies in the new Jerusalem and we're gonna sing and cheer and shout hallelujah to our redeemer because he's a good God. So chapter seven's over, let's go now to eight. All right, in those days when again, again, a great crowd had gathered. Let's stop right there. So once again, a large hungry crowd has gathered. Where are we? We're in the Decapolis, Gentile area. And so once again, a great, large, hungry crowd has gathered. And once again, Jesus is gonna test his disciples. We are in Mark chapter eight. If you were with us back in Mark chapter six, then what you remember is that there was another great, large, hungry crowd back in chapter six. Not made up of Gentiles, but made up of Jews, not in the Decapolis, but way up in Bethsaida, up on the top of the Sea of Galilee. Do you guys remember that, were you here? And so in that story, as the disciples saw this big, large, hungry crowd, they said, hey Jesus, send the people away so that they can go into the surrounding villages and get something to eat. Does anybody remember how Jesus responded to the disciples? Yeah, thank you for listening. You give them something to eat. And they're like, what? They said, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give them to eat, something to eat? And Jesus said, how many loaves do you have? Five loaves and two fish. And so we all remember two chapters ago, the miracle of the multiplication of the five loaves and two fish, which fed 5,000 men, not including women and children. That was chapter six. Now we're in chapter eight. And here's another large, hungry crowd. This time it's made up of Gentiles. Jesus is gonna test his disciples again to see if they've learned anything in the last few months because the time period between Mark 6 and Mark 8 is probably about a few months. So look again at verse one. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples, kind of like a teacher calling together his class for a test. He called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. Okay, so there's the test. How are the, how are the disciples gonna do on this test? Look at verse four. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? How did they do on the test? What grade did they get? Tell me. F, F a big, fat F. You see, here's what they should have said. They should have said, hey Jesus, we're faced with another big, large, hungry crowd, but we remember what you did a few months ago. And so this time, we're not gonna focus on our lack, we're gonna focus on your love. 
We're not gonna focus on our insufficiency. We're gonna focus on your sufficiency. We're not gonna focus on our inability. We're gonna focus on your ability. If you fed 5,000 men a few months ago, we know you can feed 4,000 men now. We can't do it, you can. We're dependent on you. Please, Lord, do your thing. And if they would have submitted that test, Jesus, the teacher, would have said, A, plus, smiley faces, stars, flowers, everything. But instead, they said, well, how in the world's anybody ever gonna feed this many people out in a desolate place? And I wonder if Jesus sighed. Now, how many of you guys are glad that God is patient? Right, so please don't ever misunderstand me. I am not up here with a holier than thou attitude thinking I'm so much better than the disciples because I am just like them. I've done the same thing that they have done. There's times when my spiritual eyesight's very cloudy and I don't get it. And so what happens is that I'm in a tough situation. I need God to show up and God shows up and provides the need but a few months later or whatever it is, I face another difficult situation and I think, how am I ever gonna figure this out? How am I ever gonna get through this? And you guys, if you're honest, probably do the same thing, right? And so God is patient. And so Jesus, the son of God, says to his men in verse five, how many loaves do you have? <laughs> This cracks me up. And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples. You know, you would think they're gonna get it now, but they're not. He gave it to the, his disciples to set before the people and they set them, the bread, before the crowd. Verse seven, and they had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Verse eight, and they, this big crowd, ate and were what? Satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over. How many baskets? Seven baskets. Now, how many of you guys remember how many baskets were left over back in chapter six? Twelve. Okay, but that Greek word is different than this Greek word. That Greek word is small picnic baskets. This Greek word is large hampers. And the reason we know that is because the same Greek word is used in Acts chapter nine, verse 25, when Paul got into trouble, they had to sneak him out of the city and they lowered him over a wall in a big hamper. That's the word used in verse eight. And so they took up the broken pieces left over, seven large hampers full. Verse nine, and there were about how many people? 4,000 people. Matthew tells us it's 4,000 men and Matthew says, not including women and children. So this is a big crowd, probably 10,000 plus people. And how many loaves did he break? Seven. It's a miracle, again. And he sent them away, verse 10, and immediately he got into a boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmont Utha, 
which is, scholars believe, on the, back on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So once again, Jesus performs an amazing miracle in spite of the fact the disciples couldn't see it. Their physical eyesight was clear, but their spiritual eyesight was blurry. And so that's bad news, but the good news is at least the disciples had some sight. The guys that we're gonna be introduced now or actually reintroduced now in the next verses, they have no sight at all. These guys are completely blind. So please look at chapter eight, verse 11. The who? Here we go again. They're all over the gospels. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And so there's Jesus in the boat, coming from the miracle down in the Decapolis. They're rowing over to the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And as they're getting close, Jesus sees them. There they are again, the party poopers, the Pharisees, standing on the shore, probably all decked out in their beautiful religious garb. And Jesus gets out of the boat, bam, they begin to argue with him. Hey, Jesus. If you're really the Messiah, prove it. Do a heavenly sign. Now, this makes me shake my head because these guys knew that Jesus had already performed so many miracles, right? Blind people seeing, deaf people hearing, mute people speaking. But the Pharisees regarded those as earthly signs. Now, all of a sudden, they want a heavenly sign. They want Jesus to do some type of cosmic trick, trick, you know, like call fire down from heaven. Hey, Jesus, if you're really the Messiah, do something in the sky that will astound us. Call down fire, bring a pillar of cloud like Moses did. Cause the sun to stand still like Joshua, whatever uh, they were asking for. So let's see how Jesus responds to these guys. Look at verse 12. And he, what? Sighed. I could have called this message when Jesus sighed, right? He sighs deeply in his spirit. And he says, why? Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them. He got into the boat again, and he went to the other side. And so the Pharisees' eyesight, spiritual eyesight, it wasn't blurry, it was non-existent. They're totally blind. And they had already, back in chapter three, verse 22, attributed all of Jesus' earthly signs, miracles, to Beelzebub. Do you guys remember this? Oh, he does miracles in the power of Satan. And so because of that, Jesus knew, even if he clicked his fingers and did some kind of trick in the sky, they still would not believe he's the Messiah. And so what does he do? Please listen. He gets in the boat and leaves, and that's scary. It's scary that Jesus leaves them in their stubborn unbelief. And so if you're here today and you're looking for some kind of sign, asking God to prove himself before you'll believe, listen, don't ask to see before you believe. Believe and you will see. Amen. You see that? <laughs> believe and you will see. 
When you believe, you're born again. And now all of a sudden, the God of the universe shows up and he gives evidence for his existence. But, but without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so now verse 14. So they're in the boat. They're heading back to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And it says, now they, that's the disciples, had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Okay, so I think most of you guys, 90% of you know that leaven in the Bible is symbolic of evil. Okay, so if you, if, if you knew that before, leaven is a sign of sin or evil, raise your hand if you, if you already knew that. Okay, a lot of you. And so for those of you who never heard that before, okay, when you make leavened bread, right, when, when, they, when they did that, well, what would they do? They would go back to a prior batch of leavened dough, they take a little lump out of it called a starter, and then they would take that starter lump when they're ready to make a new batch of dough, and they would introduce that starter fermented lump from the prior batch into the new batch, that would begin the fermenting process. So when you put that batch of dough in the oven and it's baked, what happens to the bread? It rises, that's what leaven does. And so just like leaven permeates and changes bread, so evil permeates and invades and corrupts us. And Jesus in the boat is using this opportunity to teach, instruct, disciple his disciples. And he's saying, watch out. He says it at the end of verse 15. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now what was the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Well, false teaching is what Matthew tells us. So the leaven of the Pharisees, according to the gospel of Matthew, is false teaching. And what is the leaven of the Pharisees according to the Gospel of Luke? It's hypocrisy. And what is the leaven of Herod? It's worldliness. You guys remember when John the Baptist lost his head? You remember the party that Herod had, the women, the booze, the lewd dancing? Herod was a worldly guy. And so Jesus, taking this opportunity in the boat to disciple his guys, says, watch out guys. Beware of the false teaching and hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Beware of the worldliness of Herod. Be careful, I don't want you to be leavened by this stuff. I don't want it to get in and spread and corrupt you. And by the way, that's a good message for us today, right? And so beware, ladies and gentlemen, of the leaven of false teaching. You know, this is why probably once a month you hear me say, hey, be careful, be careful, be careful about the guys that you watch on TV, on the Christian stations. There's a lot of false teaching going on in 2018. Be very careful. This is why I say at least once a month, go to blueletterbible.org. If you want a solid um, Bible study online tool, go to blueletterbible.org. And so you'll, you'll be introduced to men who rightly divide the word of truth. Guys like Chuck Smith, guys like David Guzik. If you wanna hear some good guys, listen to 
guys who are solid, um, get Warren Wearsby's commentaries on the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay, so stick with the solid teaching because false teaching will permeate and will corrupt you. It'll get you off base. And also he says, beware of the leaven of hypocrisy. Okay, so what does the word hypocrite mean? It means play actor, all right? And so the Lord is telling his disciples who he loves, and I believe that he's saying it to you guys who he loves, hey, don't be a hypocrite, don't be a play actor. Be who God made you to be. Don't try to be somebody else. Young people, listen to me for a minute. When I was a young person, I had this pressure on me. I'm an introvert, and I had pressure on me to be an extrovert. And so I would try to be an extrovert, but you know what, it killed me because it's not who God made me to be. And it wasn't until I finally thought, hey, God loves me and made me to be who I am, so I'm not gonna try to be so-and-so, I'm gonna be Mike Wiggins. It takes a lot of pressure off of you, and you can just be real. So if you're an introvert, be an introvert. If you're an extrovert, be an extrovert, right? If you know the DISC profile, if you're a D, be a D. If you're an I, an I, an S, an S, a C, a C. But just be who you are. Don't try to be someone else. God made them to be who they are. You be who you are. And it'll take so much pressure off of you. So beware of the leaven of hypocrisy. Here's a big one. In 2018, beware of the leaven of worldliness because it's coming at us. Probably more than any other generation of Christians ever, worldliness comes at us, right, through the flat screen TV on our wall, through the internet, through our smartphones, through Spotify, through movies. It's just all over the place constantly and so how many of you guys believe that we as Christians can be in the world, but we don't have to be of the world, Amen. right? That's important. And so be careful little eyes what you see, be careful little ears what you hear. I have the flat screen on my wall, I have Spotify, and I watch movies. But I'm very careful, my wife and I are very careful that we don't cross a line that goes against the scripture because we know that worldliness will absolutely be like a big bucket of cold water on the fire of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. And I don't, and I know you don't want a pastor who's cold spiritually. So beware of worldliness. And Jesus is trying to take this, this opportunity uh, to teach spiritual truths, but here's the problem, he's up here and the disciples are down here. If you're with me right now, say amen. amen. Listen to this. He says the word leaven, and they think about lunch. <laughs> right, I'll prove it. Look at verse 16. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Okay, so here's the main verse of the day. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, 12. <laughs> right? They know they're being corrected in the boat. And the seven, Jesus goes on in verse 20, and the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said, seven. <laughs> and he said to them, don't or do you not yet understand? He's like, guys, you're missing the point. 
I'm not talking about leaven and bread. I'm talking about leaven and life. I'm talking about false teaching and hypocrisy and worldliness. Don't you get it yet? If I can feed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish, and I can feed 4,000 people with seven loaves and a few fish, don't you get it? I can take care of you. And I believe that's a word for somebody here this morning, or maybe somebody who's watching on Facebook right now. God's telling you right now, I'm gonna take care of you. So stop worrying, stop fretting, stop saying, I don't know how I'm gonna get through this situation. You have a heavenly father, that's how you're gonna get through this situation. And he's real, and he's gonna show up. But without faith, it's impossible to please him. Now, they couldn't see it. And progressively, the disciples' spiritual eyesight sharpens. And that's illustrated now in our last few verses here. We're almost done. Look at verse 22. And they came to Bethsaida. Okay, they're back at the top of the Sea of Galilee. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. Verse 23, and he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes, I could have called this when Jesus spat. That could be another good sermon title. He spit on his eyes. And he laid his hands on him and he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything, what's the word? Clearly, he had clarity. And Jesus sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. And so can you imagine how happy this guy is? All of a sudden, he, he used to be able to see because he knew what trees looked like. Then he gets his sight back, it's blurry progressively. Now it's super sharp. And so he can see the beauty of creation. He can see trees, flowers, mountains, streams, birds, butterflies. By the way, you guys who can see really well, thank God for the gift of sight. Amen. It's a beautiful gift. Have you ever said, Jesus, thank you for my eyesight? Right, so he sees all these beautiful things and the most beautiful is the face of Jesus. He sees it. And so he's so happy, he's so pumped. Why was this miracle done progressively? Listen, it's an illustration of what is gonna happen to the disciples. Check it out. Just like the blind man's physical eyesight sharpened progressively, so the disciples' spiritual eyesight would sharpen progressively as well. Okay, so if you've read through the Gospels, here's what you know. You know in the Gospels, the disciples' spiritual eyesight's blurry. But then as you continue to read the New Testament and you get to the letters, all of a sudden the disciples' spiritual eyesight is super sharp. Okay, so here's a question. What happened between the Gospels and the epistles or the letters of the New Testament to sharpen their spiritual eyesight? What happened? Or let me ask you this, who happened? The Holy Spirit. 
Who came between the gospels and the epistles? The Holy Spirit, Jesus went up and the Spirit came down. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. If you haven't heard anything else today, hear this. The Holy Spirit is the corrective lens for our spiritual perception. It's Him and Him only. And some of you are doing life without the Holy Spirit. You're religious, but the Spirit of God is not working in and through you. And it's time to wake up so that you can see clearly and understand that your only hope to perceive biblical truth, your only hope to understand spiritual principles for growth, your only hope for understanding God's word is the Holy Spirit of God. And so Jesus, before he left the earth, told his disciples in John 14, 26, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. It's him. He's the key. He's the missing element. And so, do you wanna gain spiritual clarity? Here's your last point. If you wanna gain spiritual clarity as a Christian or as a person, the first thing you gotta do is you must be born again. Now listen to me, I was a religious kid and teenager, but I thought that someday God was gonna let me into heaven because of my good works. I didn't get it, right? Nicodemus in John 3.3 3 is a religious leader of Israel. And so he's got a lot of good works and Jesus says to him, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. That's Jesus' words. And so we have to be born again. You have to have two birthdays. You have to have a physical birthday, but because we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, because our spirit is dead, we gotta have a spiritual birthday. Baptism does not do that. When you're baptized as an infant, it does not cause you to have a spiritual rebirth. It's not there in the Bible. And so how, do you, how are you born again? Okay, keep the verse in its context. John 3, 3, you must be born again. Read 13 verses later, and God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever, say it again. That's it. Believes on him will not perish, but have everlasting life. I'm not talking about intellectual assent that yeah, I believe Jesus is the son of God. I'm talking about heart trust. That you believe that your only hope is his death for your sins and his resurrection. And you open your heart and you receive him by faith and you're born again. Right? Then you get baptized according to the New Testament. But not only that, spiritual direction. John 16, 13 says, Jesus said to the disciples, the Holy Spirit's gonna come and he's gonna lead you into all truth. Okay, so where do we find truth? Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, right here. And so are you walking in the darkness? You don't know God's will? You need to get into the word. 
Don't start in Leviticus. Start in John, Matthew, Luke, Acts, Romans. Understand the new covenant, understand grace, understand who you are as a child of God. Get into the word of God, then go back and learn the Old Testament, but get into the word of God. And the Holy Spirit of God, listen, don't just start reading it. This is not a textbook, this is God's word. And so say, Lord, open my eyes that I may understand your word. Give me spiritual illumination, Holy Spirit. And he begins day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, to teach you and to give you wisdom and to say, this is the way, walk in it. Spiritual rebirth, it's all about the Holy Spirit. Spiritual direction, it's all about the Holy Spirit. Spiritual gifts. The church doesn't even talk about this anymore. But when Jesus went up, the spirit came down. And when the spirit came down, he gave diverse gifts to the body of Christ. You have a spiritual gift and the gifts are not for you. There's only one gift out of all the gifts that's for you personally to build yourself up. And that's the gift of tongues as you pray in tongues. If you have that gift, some have it, some don't. But all the other gifts, ladies and gentlemen, are for others. And so God will give you a word of wisdom to help someone else if they're struggling. He'll give you a word of knowledge to help someone else if they need help. He'll give you uh, the gift, some of you, of teaching and instruction or exhortation. These are gifts of the Holy Spirit. The problem in the church is we're doing church without the Holy Spirit and we're doing church without the gifts of the Holy Spirit and it's dead. I don't wanna pastor a dead church. And so are you born again? Is the spirit directing you through the word of God? And are you using your spiritual gifts to build up the body of Christ? That's the question. And so I'm gonna finish this, the message in this way. Maybe you're here today and you just need to come to Jesus. Listen, that's the first step. You need Jesus. He's your only hope. You know what this church is about? Jesus. You know who our hero is? Jesus. You know who's the central figure of the entire word of God? Jesus. And he loves you and he knew that you could not make it to heaven on your own. So what did he do? The son of God, the eternal son of God took on human flesh and became a man. He was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, and he went to a cross because he loves you. And he was punished so you would not have to be punished. He died because the wages of sin is death. Did he sin? Yes or no? Nope. But we sinned. And so he took our punishment and the wrath of God against our sin was appeased. He rose again the third day and he says, come to me. And so if you're willing right now, the best way you know how, I'm not saying you gotta clean up your act to come to Jesus. I'm saying the best way you know how just to turn from your sins and to turn to Christ alone. And if you're ready right now to receive him as your Lord and Savior, we're gonna do it public because there's nothing private about Christianity and no one's gonna do this to you because all of us are lost sinners saved by grace. But if you'd like to come to Christ or if you're far away from him 
and you wanna come back to Jesus Christ, just stand at your feet right now, July 8th, stand for the Lord, and we'll take care of this through prayer. Whoever you are, I'm just gonna wait for a minute. Don't be embarrassed about Jesus. He wasn't embarrassed for you. He died publicly for your sins. If you wanna come to Christ or come back to Jesus Christ and rededicate your life, just stand to your feet. All right, awesome. Awesome. Whoever you are, just stand to your feet. Let's really encourage these people as they stand to their feet this afternoon. That's awesome. Awesome, God bless you. Just stand and remain standing. I know there's more people, God bless you. I know there's more, come to Christ. Come to Christ this afternoon. Let him have your life. Give your life to him, God bless you in the back. Awesome. Awesome, just stand and remain standing. And so, so this is gonna be the last call, but the question you gotta ask yourself is this. Are you tired of your life living for yourself? Do you want Jesus to rock your world, forgive your sins and be your savior and Lord? If you do, he says, if you'll stand, he said, if you'll acknowledge me before men, I'll acknowledge you before my father. That's why we do this public. And so last call, just stand to your feet, whoever you are, and we'll come to Christ or come back to Christ today. Awesome, good job, good job, good job, good job. Man, hey, they can cheer a lot louder for a soccer game, right, come on. <laughs> Man, it's gonna change lives. Okay, so I'm not sure if you're coming to Christ or coming back to Christ, but we can take care of that through prayer. He knows your heart and you know where you're at with the Lord. And so I'll lead you in a prayer, but here's my, my, my fear every time we do this, is I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that people are gonna just repeat words and that doesn't save anybody. Okay, so you gotta go from your heart to the Lord's heart between you and him. I'll lead you if you wanna say the words that I say, if, you will own them and mean them from your heart to his, great. Okay, and so let's go to the Lord and give our lives to him today. Church family, in support of all these who are standing, can you say it out loud um, as well? And so we're going to Jesus, here we go. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I've sinned. I know I deserve death. But I believe you came and died for me and paid for my sins. Thank you. I believe you rose again. Right here and right now, I open my heart to you. I turn from my sins. I turn to you. I choose you. I receive you, Lord. Come and be my savior and the boss of my life. And from this day forward, I will follow you. It's in your name I pray, amen.